So fun to talk about vacation, what in the past has happened or what's to come. Speaking of vacations, I've been a, uh, a pastor for almost 15 years. I know, I look so young. How can you believe that, right? But, uh, but back in the early years, I was a youth pastor, youth over there. I was a youth pastor, and I had a lot of fun. And one of our vacations or, you know, youth trips, I guess you could call it, is we went up to Lake Tahoe. It was down in L.A. at that time, Lake Tahoe. We went snowboarding, right? And there was, like, so many youth there, like, expert snowboarders, right? Way better than me. It was my first time snowboarding. And I ventured out with youth who would easily and very often make fun of me for anything that they could, right? So all, all of us went up to, to Lake Tahoe, and we had our, our friend Eddie who lived in Lake Tahoe, and he was kind of our tour guide, I guess you could say. So Eddie uh, was, a, was a friend of mine, and he helped us find places to stay and everything, and, and he took us out to, uh, to, you know, where we would ski and snowboard and all, and all the rest, and, and, and since it was my first time, I sort of just did like naturally what you would do, I thought at least, is you would go on the bunny slopes, right? So I went on the bunny slopes. There was a few youth that hadn't really snowboarded before, so they were kind of with me, but you know, a bunch of them went up, you know, to other places that were a lot more difficult. They knew what they were doing, but I'm on the bunny slopes, and my friend Eddie is there, and Sherry's kind of just waiting for me, like, okay, get used to this, and then let's go somewhere fun, you know, sort of thing. So I'm on the bunny slopes, and Eddie comes over to me. And, um, and he's like, what are you doing here, man? You're like, you're like 20 whatever I was, right? You're like 20 whatever. You can handle the other. I mean, you're you know, kind of an athletic guy, and you can handle this. I know it's your first time. I'm like, no, no, no. I got to get used to it, too. I got to get the feel of it, you know? And I mean, he kind of starts poking fun at me, and, and Sherry's there, and, and, and he's trying to get me to go up like to some other mountain, you know? And Sherry's like, no, no, no. Just get used to it. Don't listen to him. And Eddie's like, no, no, no. Listen to me. I'm the expert here. And Sherry's like, look. I'm the wise, loving voice you need to listen to right now. Do not do this, right? And it kind of goes back and forth, Sherry, Eddie. They're almost like arguing, like, to me. And then Eddie says, just trust me. And he points to, to the mountain. I didn't know, like, the colors or the diamonds or anything like that. And he's like, the next step, just go to the next step. And he, and, he, and he pointed to the double black diamond. Yeah, exactly. It gets better. So I, I basically going back and forth, and Sherry's like, you're a fool if you do this, right? And, um, and, so, and then, he, then he challenged my manhood. It's like, if you're a real man, right, you'll go up there. All the youth are going up there, right? And I'm like, all right, game on, right? So I, so I go to the ski lift, right? I jump on the ski lift, and you knew it was bad when I, because when I tried to get off the ski lift, I actually wiped out. <laughs> at, at the top of the black di- you know, double black diamond where you know, all these other experts, so to speak, are there, and they're all looking at me like, what the heck is this guy going up there, I'm sure. And so I get on, you know, and I start going down, and of course I'm just wiping out, like left and right. I mean, I can't even go because I'm just boom, 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 right? It's like, and it, it, it becomes frustrating, you know? And, um, and I'm just like, oh, I can't do this. And I'm pulling off to the side. And I'm resting. My back is hurting. I mean, all kind of, it's just a bad situation. Everyone's staring at me like, what is this guy doing up here, you know? And, and um, Eddie's kind of laughing. And Eddie, by the way, Eddie's last name is Roach. <laughs> and if we're just keeping it real, I hope no one's last name in the room is that. But I mean, Roach, really? Roach is his last name. And he has these like beady eyes. <laughs> so he's kind of like the devil, right? <laughs> And he's laughing at me, and then he comes back up to me, and he's like, smile, oh, you're doing great, Steve, right? Kind of thing. Like, I'm not doing great, clearly. So anyway, at, at some point, this actually did happen. This is not a pastor story. I thought to myself, I've gone sledding before, so what if I unhooked my board from my feet and actually went sledding on it? It was like a, a good idea in the moment to me, right? So I literally sat on the board. I'm no kidding. This really happened. I have a lot of witnesses. I sat on the board, and I started going. And I'm telling you, I've never gone so fast at anything. <laughs> and then I did something that you never should do ever in your life. It was an accident, but I actually accidentally let go of my board, right? 
and it was flying down the mountain like a missile. (laughs) And you couldn't have planned this better. You couldn't even have made this in a movie look like it could really happen. But there's a guy snowboarding down the hill, and the missile's going down the hill, and it direct hit on this guy, knocks him off his feet, wipes out hard. He is on the ground, and you can't really look around and go, who did that, right? <laughs> You're the only guy without the board. So I make, I make my way down there, very embarrassed. <laughs> this is like big guy, you know, like he, he could take me. I know that. And um, I'm like, I'm so sorry. And he's like, bro, you got to hold on to your board. I'm like, thank you for your advice very much, you know. <laughs> And I'll finally make my way down the mountain. But, um, but, but here's the, the, the kind of funny thing. That, that metaphor, in a sense, of Eddie Roach, right, and, and Sherry, the wise, loving voice, is sort of like an entry point and a metaphor of spiritual warfare. Right? I know that's kind of a silly story, but it's like the voice of Eddie with the beady eyes and the last name Roach, the devil, right, child in that moment. Is like, has this voice that he's whispering to me to take me where I should not go, to derail me, to destroy my life, right, in that moment. Um, and, and Sherry, the wise, loving, sort of divine voice, if you will, right, in that moment. And, and this is what happens kind of in our heads. We, we have these sort of audio tracks going on in our heads, right, different voices. And, and the enemy, Satan, whispers lies to us. Tries to take us where we ought not go and do things what we ought not do. He's trying to tempt us. He, he distorts and twists the truth. He tries to deceive us and derail our lives. And scripture says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10. Destroy the life that God intends for you and me. And the Bible says that the, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Whether we acknowledge this or not, there is a spiritual battle happening. And it happens every day in your life and in mine. And spiritual warfare, at its very essence, is a battle for the mind. It's what's going on inside your head. And although Satan cannot read your mind, nothing in Scripture supports that. He cannot read your mind, but he can influence our minds if we let him. And this is the everyday spiritual battle that we're in. But here's the thing, we don't have to fear Satan, because as we're about to discover, God equips us all, right, with exactly what we need to be and do what he designed us to be and do. And we're going to look at Ephesians 6, because we get this battle plan from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's the battle plan we need to win the everyday battles that we all have different ones but the everyday battles in our lives. So we pick up verse 10. This is week three of a series. And Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Then he says, stand firm then. And I'll pick back up in just a second. But, but notice the word stand or standing or stand firm. It's used multiple times there. And what Paul is saying from the outset about this is, is this is the idea, that we're to stand on the truth. 
on the truth about God, the truth about Satan, the truth about ourselves. And in Ephesians 6, we discover that the object of our attention and energy is not to be focused on Satan. Instead, our efforts are to be directed at recognizing and choosing to stand in what God has already said to be true regarding our identity, period. Spiritual warfare is not a power encounter. It is not about conquering or overpowering Satan. It is a truth encounter. It's about choosing to align our inner lives with what God says is true about him and about us. And when we do, Scripture says, Satan will flee from us. The only power that Satan and the evil forces at work in this world, the only power they have over us is what we give them. Spiritual warfare is about standing in our true identity in Christ. And in Ephesians 6, Paul welcomes us to the fight club. He teaches us how to fight the spiritual battle with what he calls the armor of God. And this armor refers to the dynamics going on in our inner lives. The six pieces of armor, they're the weapons, or or you could say the resources, that we use to fight against our spiritual adversary. And notice that that Paul Paul says this, this is not actually our armor, this is God's armor that he gives us. So when we put on the armor... We're actually putting on this supernatural enablement that comes to us as we stand firm in the truth and in our identity in Christ. So Paul continues. He says, stand firm then, verse 14, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. There's six pieces of armor here. With the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. There's so much there. But the order of the armor is important here. So so Paul starts off with the belt of truth. The first thing to be secured... It's not a weapon or protective device, yet it's the essential foundation for anyone who goes into battle. Without it, nothing else works. So in the first century, which you have to kind of understand to understand really what Paul is saying, but it was customary for men to wear these long, loose-fitting tunics or robes. Basically, it's like this large piece of material with holes for the head and the arms. And the bell was, was a cloth or sometimes a leather girdle that cinched up the tunic, So its purpose was to hold up the loose garment to prevent a person from stumbling or tripping. The belt stabilized whatever they were wearing and allowed soldiers to function unencumbered with freedom to respond as needed. So the belt of truth stabilizes our lives by keeping things in proper order, thus freeing us to respond as needed. Satan knows that if we don't know and see the truth clearly that everything else will begin to unravel. He wants disorder. He wants chaos. He wants to distort and deceive. And Scripture says there's no truth in him and that he's the father of lies. And in contrast, it says God is truth and everything about him is true. And if you study the whole book of Ephesians, which we've done over the last year, year and a half or so in different ways, 
But if you study the whole book, it's, constru- it's constructed around two central truths that are woven through the entire book. The truth about us, our identity in Christ, and the truth about God, who is all-powerful and infinitely loving. So if we take our cue from the text, truth here refers to how we personally experience what God says is true about himself and about us. Putting on the belt of truth means we acknowledge and we choose to live in the truth about who God is and who we are in Christ. And that involves taking time to pray and build a personal relationship with Jesus. It involves seeking to know God personally and intimately through the scriptures and inviting God's spirit in to guide us and speak to us and make his word, the Bible, the authority in our lives. And then as we discover and experience the truth about God and as we get to know truth himself, remember Jesus said, I am the truth As we get to know him, then we'll better counteract any non-truths or distorted perceptions or false beliefs that inform our thinking, feelings, or actions. Now, these implications are massive in our lives. If our lives are shaped by diseased ideas about God and or about ourselves, we will inevitably live compromised lives. We will be unable to rightly relate to God or live in alignment with all that God wants us to be. If our emotional default setting is distrust or emotional distance from God, or if we're anchored in self-hatred or a sense that we can never change or never be good enough, or, or if we think we're worthless or unlovable and the list goes on, then we're not wearing the belt of truth. I'll give you two quick examples. My wife, Sherry, and I, we have one of our sons, we have two, one of our sons is autistic. And along the way, there's been moments when Sherry's had this thought it's my fault. And it runs deep, and she would struggle with it, right? And so we've had this conversation, and the way she's dealt with that, right, it's a lie. It's an accusation. It's not true. Seems to be coming from the enemy, best I can tell. It's an accusation from Satan. So her response, right, to ward that off, to cause Satan to flee, is to get a hold of the truth and to speak the truth out loud and to pray the truth, Because that's not true what's going on in her head. And it's a process and it takes effort. So you speak it out loud. You pray it out loud. These thoughts do not come from God. And that's part of our journey in this, identifying those thoughts that are lies or accusations or deceptions. Another example, think of a a 25-year-old single woman, right, who has thoughts that run through her head. Uh, no, No one wants to marry me. I'll never get married. I'm not pretty. No one likes me. I'm unlovable. I'm worthless, right? The list goes on. Those things are not true about you. And and the journey in that is is to realize and live in the truth that you are lovable, that you are beautiful. And though you can't control the outcome or how life plays out, we are in charge of our thoughts and, and allowing them to linger things that are not true is our responsibility. And we do need to identify the audio tracks that are running that are not true. And create another audio track of what is true, that we are God's beloved, daughters and sons, that we root our lives in the identity of God. The truth about every one of us is that we are lovable and love beyond what we could ever even realize, and that God wants you to bask in that every day. It will transform your personhood and perspective on life and even yourself. So if you experience feelings like 
shame or hopelessness or, or loneliness or heightened anxiety or lack of purpose or, or inferiority or self-hatred or despair. I mean, those sorts of things, if you're experiencing those, and we all do, then you're not living fully in truth. Likewise, if you believe that, that your acceptance is based on what you do for God, your identity is not in Christ but in your own human performance. So putting on the belt of truth is about partnering with God to align our inner lives with what is true about God's infinite love and character and our identity as his beloved. That's the belt of truth. Now to the second piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. So the, the, the breastplate in first century culture was a leather or bronze chest protector slipped over the head and cinched tight in the back. Its primary purpose was to protect, you could guess, the vital organs, including the heart. And so in Hebrew and Greek thought, the heart was this inclusive understanding that includes everything internal that's a component of an external action. This includes things like um, our thinking, our emotions, our conscience, our will, our affections, right? So the breastplate protects that. And just as the heart is the physical pump controlling the flow of blood throughout our body, so the heart, our essence and core, is the spiritual palm that God uses to infuse life into us. The only reason the rest of our body works is through the heart. If the heart stops, everything else stops. And the same is true spiritually. It's why Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of your life. The breastplate of righteousness protects the heart. The belt of truth comes before righteousness because there can't be righteousness apart from truth. Truth is the standard. Righteousness reveals how to work that standard out. And there's two sides of righteousness. There's the being side and there's the doing side. On the being side, righteousness has been imputed, the Bible tells us, to every follower of Jesus. Biblical righteousness means a right standing with God made possible solely through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. When we trust Jesus as Savior, he not only forgives our sins, we also receive righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus that gets credited to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Satan cannot ultimately take that away, but he tries to restrict our personal practice of righteousness because he knows it will dislodge our intimacy with God. He tries to break our fellowship with God by causing a breach in our position of righteousness, the being side, and our practice of righteousness, the doing side. When we allow unrighteous practices, sin, to exist in our lives, and we don't deal with that. We don't confess it. We don't repent. We don't invite God into the forgiving and healing aspect of it. We leave the door wide open for Satan's influence. In other words, if we don't deal with our unrighteousness and sin, we're more susceptible to Satan's schemes and strategies. So to put on the breastplate of righteousness reminds us of our right standing with God based on Christ's death and resurrection, and in gratitude, we pursue righteous living. We don't pursue righteous living to earn God's favor or acceptance, and that gets mixed up. We pursue righteous living as a grateful response to the freedom, love, and acceptance that God has already offered us. That's the gospel. 
The enemy wants to tell us that we have to earn God's love and that we don't deserve it and that we're not good enough. He wants to drive our hearts away from God any way he can. He'll try anything, which is why we must bring our hearts into alignment with the truth of what it means to be made righteous before God through the sacrifice of Jesus and not through our own means. And when deep in our hearts we know our standing before God as righteous, the outflow of our lives will be righteous living. Not to earn God's favor, but as an act of gratitude. Then we move to the third piece of armor, what Paul calls the feet fitted, fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Kind of a bunch of words together, but... But, but a Roman soldier, right, if we go back to the first century, his, his shoes were called in Greek caliga. Sandals meant sandals studded heavily with nails, <coughs> okay, for a soldier. These nails were known as hobnails. They were firmly placed directly through the sole of the shoe for increased durability and stability. This traction kept the soldier from slipping and sliding, similar to the function of like football or baseball cleats. You'll see a picture in a second. If a soul, it gave the soldier this sure footing. It made them more mobile in battle and more difficult to knock down. So the spiritual parallel is connected to the word readiness, which entails feet that are equipped. The gospel of peace relates to the peace that Jesus' followers have when they enter a relationship with him. Romans 5.1 says it like this. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's being described is, is a capacity for inner stability and mobility based on the good news of peace with God, which liberates and empowers us. When we put on peace, we create traction so Satan can't knock us off our feet. I mean, there's nothing like looking at a good pair of feet, right? <laughs> but Satan wants to knock us down. We're ready, though, if we put on the shoes. So it's interesting, in the, in the first century, there's this common tactic, sort of a battle tactic, if you will. It was an ancient version of the, of the landmine. There would be these razor-sharp sticks put in the ground facing the ongoing, you know, approaching army, right, in the hopes that you would pierce the feet of the onrushing soldiers, and if the soldiers' feet are compromised, they knew this, then they would be immobilized. The soldier could be an elite soldier with the best equipment, all the training and experience necessary, with a fierce sense of determination, but he'll be rendered virtually useless if his feet are injured. Satan wants us to feel useless. He wants to destabilize us, knock us down. He wants to take us down, keep us defeated, immobilize us from God's mission from what God wants to do in your life. It's why God wants us prepared or ready so when the hard things of life come, when the trials and the temptations come, we're rooted in his peace and we trust in his greater purposes and provision in our lives. The word peace encompasses this idea of shalom, which means completeness, wholeness, or an inner resting of the soul that does not fluctuate based on outside influences. So, so a person of peace, in essence, is grounded, stable, poised, at rest within. Why? Because they trust God deeply. Isaiah 26 says this, you, God, will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. I mean, the principle there is trusting in God produces peace. And the deeper and more we learn to trust God, the greater peace that we will experience. 
Philippians 4, another place Paul writes about peace. He's, he tells us that the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds. It goes beyond our understanding, but it guards our hearts and our minds from the lies, the deceptions, the accusations that get thrown our way. And it's a peace that we experience when we walk deeply with Christ, a peace that remains even when everything in life goes awry. It is possible to have that peace. And the depth of that peace comes in direct correlation to our trust in God. That's the peace that Paul is talking about here. So, so when you step back from this Ephesians 6 passage and you look at it and, and you study it, there, there's three pieces we've talked about so far in the armor of God. And, and we need to, to wear those in order to be well-dressed or equipped for spiritual warfare. And the first three pieces, there's like two divisions here, or one division really. There's two different parts to it. There's, um, there's a three pieces what you wear all the time, right? The belt, the shoes, right, what we just talked about. And the verb in Greek that Paul uses is translated, in essence, having. And it indicates at all times. So you have those three things on at all times. The breastplate, the shoes, the belt. Okay. Then Paul shifts the verb that he's using. And he says the next three are what you have at hand, ready to pick up and use whenever you need them. So there's the division. Paul switches verbs and he says, instead of having, he says, take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the spirit. So, so if this maybe helps, it, if you imagine a police officer walking into a restaurant, say, they stop for breakfast, they wouldn't typically remove their utility belt or their bulletproof vest or their boots, right? They just wear those all the time. Those are buckled up, fixed into place, laced, all that. Right? However, they might have at their disposal a riot shield, a helmet, a knife, or something like that for personal defense if needed, Right, so you kind of follow the division there. So, so if we look at the next three weapons, they're to be used when needed. In verse 16, Paul says this, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which, will, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The word used here for shield describes a thick plank of wood that measured about four, four and a half feet long and about two and a half feet wide. In battle, the soldier could crouch down and hide behind it when being targeted by arrows. Their whole body would get behind it. The shield was covered on the outside with the metal, or sometimes leather even, and treated with oil in order to extinguish the fiery tar that were on the tips of the arrows. Roman archers would wrap the tips of the arrows with cotton material that they would then soak in tar. Just before they shot the arrow, they would ignite the arrow, and when the arrow hit its target, you can imagine the tar splattered, causing several little fires on the clothing of the soldier, that's the hope at least, or any other combustible you know, thing around it. The fiery darts from Satan intend to do something like that, to dismantle our life, to start fires everywhere. When the arrow hits its target, the tar splatters, right, causing several little fires, and this is what the enemy wants to do. He whispers lies and accusations. He tempts us and tries to twist the truth on us. However, when we take up the shield of faith, it protects us from the attack and puts out the fires. A common belief, when you, when you think of faith, a common belief about faith is that God will do whatever we pray for if we just have strong enough faith, as if we're supposed to muster up. And that might sound good or even sound right, but there is no foundation in Scripture for that. We could do a long study on that, but faith is not about trying to muster up enough belief. Faith is taking God at his word and then acting as if God is telling the truth. 
It is choosing to believe and respond to what God has already said is true. And faith in something that's not true is no faith at all. Just as we can't hold up like paper plates to stop fiery darts, we can't place our faith in an unworthy object and expect it to protect us. Satan fires these lies and accusations at us, and as these arrows strike home at the center of our thinking and emotions, they have the capacity to start a multitude of smaller fires, which in turn have the potential to engulf us in things like fear and doubt and worry and anxiety and despair and a whole list of other things. But Ephesians 6 tells us that by faith, we have the power to extinguish these flaming arrows, That is, we have the power to ward off the lies and the distortions and the twisted truths, the accusations, and also to quench them and snuff out their impact. We're equipped with that. And instead of allowing our circumstances, our thoughts, our emotions to dictate our reality, we have choices. To put on the shield of faith means we choose to align our lives with what God has already said is true. There's a really powerful image I remember from one of the uh, first uh, 300 movies. I don't know if anyone remembers this or saw that, but, um, but there's 300 brave Spartan warriors. And they went into battle against a million uh, warriors, soldiers from, from the Persian Empire. And, um, and in, in this one scene, the enemy soldiers send literally thousands upon thousands of arrows through the air. They kind of darken the sky. And the command is given to the Spartan warriors to raise their shields. All the Spartans raise their shields simultaneously. It gives them complete safety. They link together, and all these arrows come down. And there's this one part, the guy's even laughing underneath the shield because they're so protected. They feel so safe under all those linked shields. And what a metaphor that is because when our faith is weak, and we've probably all had those moments, Maybe our health takes a bad turn. Maybe someone betrays us. Maybe we lose our job. Maybe we're depressed. Maybe we're struggling with anxiety. Maybe there's a relationship that ended badly or unexpectedly. Maybe we're doubting God. When our faith is weak, we ought to lean on each other's faith. We ought to link shields together. So when the arrows come, our faith that might be weak in isolation becomes strong in community. Because the truth of the matter is Satan wants to attack individuals, no doubt. But Satan also wants to attack the body. And to be more specific, awakening. And we got to link shields together in our faith. So when one is strong and one is not, we link together and together we're stronger. Strength in numbers, if you will. That's the idea here. In essence, to take up the shield of faith means we live in the belief of who God says we are. And our response is to walk by faith and in obedience to Christ. And we do that as individuals, but we also do that in a community. And it will ward off the enemy's lies and deceptions. Brings us to the fifth piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. And the helmet, as you would probably guess, was metal. Sometimes had a leather covering of it, over it. And the focus here is about the mind, about about thinking, again, we, we often think of salvation, right, the helmet of salvation. We think of salvation as referring only to a present condition that was established in the past. But if you look at the whole of the New Testament, it considers salvation something that's also a thing in the future as the culmination of God's work in history and in our own lives. So the helmet is the hope that comes from knowing Jesus Christ who is working out his plan 
in history and in our own lives. This gives Christ followers real hope for the future, for eternity. We're reminded that this world is not our ultimate reality. And that life here is as fleeting as vapor. 1 Peter 1 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. It's coming to you. And though I know we look around our world and, and it's like the principalities and the power of darkness is reigning. And though it feels like that sometimes, the end is absolutely certain. The knowledge that the full implications of our salvation are in God's hands when brought before our active minds is meant to help us maintain an eternal perspective and reframe all of life and fill us with hope. The helmet of salvation is about bringing our thinking into alignment with God's eternal perspective and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is committed to do in the future. That's what it means to wear the helmet of salvation. And then we come to the sixth piece of armor, called the Sword of the Spirit, verse 17. And perhaps the best birthday gift I ever got was given to me by Sherry, my wife. Uh, When we were dating, we were at like a Dave and Buster's kind of place, and she brings out my birthday present in some kind of big box like this. And you have to understand, in that day, right, old man 39 Steve here, um, you know, Gladiator and Braveheart were like epic films happening, right? So this might not have the same effect today, But back then, I'm like 24 or 5, whatever I was, right, 23 maybe, and and I'm like like locked in. I'm quoting those movies, right? I mean, that's the sort of culture I'm in. And Sherry brings out, I unwrap this, the sword, right? (laughs) I am suddenly the coolest guy in all of Dave and Buster's, right? I got the best girlfriend on the planet. Everyone's jealous. This is a good moment, right? I mean, literally, the server's like, come on, can I hold it, can I hold it? I'm going to take it to my buddy who's cooking in the kitchen, you know? And they literally, (laughs) after I, you know, had it for a few minutes, they literally took it back in the kitchen, and they're like this with the the chef. Like, don't use that back there, you know? And uh, and Sherry put this verse on there, Ephesians 6, 17. All right, it was so cool. And um, that was an awesome moment for me, and... And, but it reminds me, right, the sword of the Spirit, the offensive weapon that's used in this text, right, that, that's the Word of God, it says. And the sword, this is so interesting, the sword, the Greek word is, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, machera, or machaira, maybe. It refers actually to a smaller type of sword, that's an Excalibur sword, um, <laughs> a smaller type of sword. I started collecting swords from that moment on, right, so... I thought about bringing them all. No, just, um, anyway, I digress. Two Roman swords, right? There's, um, there's different kinds of swords back then, but, but the one that Paul really refers to based on context was between 6 and, and 18 inches long, which functioned more like a dagger, and it was a very precise weapon that soldiers carried for use in close hand-to-hand combat. It was used when an enemy soldier broke through the ranks and threatened a Roman soldier with immediate personal danger. The sword was the last line of personal defense, in essence, in a close encounter. And in our lives, when engaged in personal attack, close personal attack, we are not defenseless. Putting faith into action involves verbally renouncing lies and affirming the truth. Truth in God's word, you know, truth grounded objectively in the scriptures. And by partnering with truth through faith, We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, sword of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit inspired this book, gave us this book, 
And it helps us overcome the destructive ploys of the enemy. Think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He's our model for this. And Jesus uses this spiritual weapon, the sword of the Spirit, in Matthew 4. He faces three temptations. Satan twists the truth. In each case, a specific personal appeal is made to Jesus, the same kind of appeals that are made to us, to be powerful, to be spectacular, to be relevant in essence. And Jesus responds to Satan's attempts to deceive with this phrase, it is written. He quotes three times from the Old Testament to counter Satan's tactics. The sword of the Spirit is the verbal declaration of truth from God's Word empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the weapon we must use to fend off personal attacks that try to distract us and derail us, even destroy our lives. And this encounter between Jesus and Satan raises a challenging question for all of us. Have you filled your mind with enough it is written statements that you're prepared to dispel the lies of the enemy that you face every day. All of us deal with this stuff inside. And it's critical that we identify the lies, the audio tracks that are running, and then find the truth in Scripture that counters those lies. And this takes some effort. But the goal is to equip ourselves to the point where we have these truths on the tip of our tongue. And then as we move through life and are confronted with these lies and accusations and deceptions, we are prepared. This is what the Bible calls renewing our mind. And it's necessary for every follower of Jesus to practice if we want to experience transformation and overcome the schemes of the enemy. When the world says you need a certain job or status to be respected or make a certain amount of money... Or when the world says you have to be thin to be lovable, and on and on the things go, do you know what to say? Because those things aren't true, but we let those lies linger, and they get embedded into our psyche, into our mind. But what if our minds became so filled with it is written truths that as soon as we heard the lie, we responded with truth? And to me, it's like if the Son of God felt it necessary to respond to Satan's specific lies with specific truths, ought not we? I want to close this morning in a very practical way. I'm going to give you four brief things that I believe can help you, kind of summarizing all of this, but I believe that can help you develop a battle strategy for your everyday life. And I think we all need it. The first is this. We need to speak the truth out loud. Okay, Satan can't read your mind, no. But he knows where you are susceptible. And he can influence you if you let him. And for that reason, it's critically important that we speak the truth out loud, that we speak God's word out loud so he hears it. Jesus did this. I think we'd be wise to do the same. I mean, there's something powerful. If you've ever done this, there's something powerful that happens when we verbalize the truth in the face of temptation or discouragement or struggle. So speak it out loud. The second thing is that we personalize the truth. Personalize it. Get specific with identifying the lies you believe. And again, it takes effort. Write them in a journal. I've lined up on one side of a journal lies that I believe, and on the other side of the journal, truths that I need to adhere and apply and live in more deeply. Find a verse of Scripture that counters a lie you believe and begin to speak it not only out loud, but personalize it and pray it. You're saying it out loud. You're praying it out loud. You're writing it down. I mean, there's so many examples I can give. I'll jump to the third one, though. Because when when you pray these truths, your prayers become audible expressions of your alignment with God's plan for your life, for your character, for your purpose. The third one is this. Memorize the truth. 
Take time to do this. And I know some of you go, I can't memorize. If you're a parent, you, you, you understand that you can memorize because I myself have started to hum, I love you, you love me, right? You're right. And I'm like, whoa, wait. Uh, you know, like songs get stuck in your head, right? Now, I don't even think you have to set out to memorize it. I think repetition does wonders, right, to memorize something. We can all do it. I know we can. You got a note card in your program today, your bulletin. I want you to pull that out. Simple thing. Took a lot of work to design that little card. <laughs> we gave it to you because I want you to take this away and you find at least one verse, maybe one on either side, and you write down a verse that you want to memorize. Don't even try to memorize it if you don't want. Just go over it every day. Put it by your bedside. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it in your car and repeat it and think about it. And it brings us to the fourth one. Not only memorize, but meditate on the truth. Meditate on the truth. I've heard it said, I've heard Ryan say this, memorization is for preparation, meditation is for transformation. Hey, we need both. I do this thing, it's become a habit in, in, in my life. I have beside my bed several verses of scripture and they change over time, but I want the last thing I think about before I go to bed to be, to be meditating on a verse. I have scripture verses in my car, on note cards. I mean, I've accidentally memorized so many verses because I just have them there and I go over them and I read them and I think about them. Sometimes it's a minute Less. So I know you can do this. Memorizing scripture and meditating on scripture helps us hide truths in our hearts so we are prepared for battle and transformed into Christ's likeness along the way. And I'll end with this. Jesus said these words to his disciples in John 8. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you want to live in greater freedom, if you want to experience greater joy and intimacy with God, connection to God, if you want to overcome your struggles and obstacles in your life, you have to develop habits where you live in the truth and you live in the identity of who you are in Christ. The spiritual battle is won when we stand firm in truth, in what is true about God and what is true about us. Will you pray with me? Father, we pause. There's so much here, but God, I pray for us. I pray that we would be men and women who decide that we're going to live in truth. Truth about you, truth about us. Help us to engage the battle with a spirit of courage and faith. Teach us how to wear the armor of God every day. Make us stronger as individuals, make us stronger as a community because of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name.